Well, we are in Romans chapter 9, and we're going to read verses 22 through 29 this morning. Romans chapter 9, verses 22 through 29. We'll be taking a little bit of a break from Romans, as uh, next week I'm actually going to be preaching at Angel Cordoza's church in the Dominican. Um, And so we have the rich blessing of uh, having Pastor Matt preach. And uh, so we'll take a a short hiatus from Romans 9. But Romans 9 has been a very, very rich study indeed. And no doubt many questions have come up. And uh, I'm happy to answer any of those questions as they do come up. And so uh, feel free to to talk to me and let me know if you have uh, uh, conversations that you want to have as a result of what we've been studying in God's Word. Well, let's read God's Word together. Romans 9, starting in verse 22. Romans 9, verse 22. God's word says, What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory? Even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. As indeed he says in Hosea, those who are not my people, I will call my people. And her who is not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, Though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, If the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. And thus ends this reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. So we are in Romans 9 and finishing up this great section on God's sovereignty. And we're also in summer. And as summer break comes, you'll remember from childhood that meant a change of pace from the grind of second grade math and fifth grade spelling tests. We all have memories of what we did to pass the long, hot days that seemed to really go on forever and ever. I mean, some of you played video games, some of you rode bikes in the neighborhood, or maybe you went to the movies, or walked the mall back when that used to be cool. And of course, if you had good parents, you were given a list of chores to accomplish most days. I'm sure you also remember that it took a bit of motivation to get you up and moving to get you to sort out your laundry, to to vacuum the floors, to clean the bathroom or mow the lawn or whatever it is. There's always a hundred good reasons that you would have why you didn't need to move right then and there. Why doing your chore later would be just so much better. If you could only finish the thing that you were doing, if you could only do these other things when it was later in the day and it was cooler in the evening. And I'm sure it isn't too hard to remember your excuses both got you into trouble and kept you from doing everything that you were supposed to do. The fact of the matter is, your parents' request to help out a little more around the house wasn't intrinsically motivating. You didn't hear the sweet, melodic, Mary Poppins-esque voice of your mother and jump right to work, right? 
You probably groaned and were like the sluggard from Proverbs, putting his hand in the dish and too lazy to bring it back to his mouth. Then you contrast that with the offers to go to the beach or to go to a concert or go swim at your friend's new pool or play a brand new video game and sure, you were ready to go. I'm sure you remember what it looks like to be extremely motivated, to spring into action and to move as a child. It's not that you don't love your parents, but you've certainly heard their commands to do the normal things like chores a hundred times. And the same old, same old isn't always motivating us to get up and move. You get up and move for the things you really, really want to do. You know, I think the reason why we don't get up to read our Bibles, the reason why going to church on Sundays can sometimes be a chore, or sharing the gospel with unbelievers can be so scary, is pretty simple. It feels almost like a chore. It's something we do only after we're done doing the things we really want to do. God's voice seems so plain and ordinary and a little bit like your mom reminding you to clean your room by the end of the day. In fact, some of you might be more motivated to clean up your house than you are to worship God. But then you run into things in the Bible like, Romans 12, 1. Go ahead and go there. It's a couple pages to the right. And you might be reading the scriptures and you come across Romans 12, 1 and it says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. And you say, wow, a living sacrifice? Really? My body, my whole life is to be a living sacrifice? I mean, sacrifices are normally dead, as in dead, dead, right? And so this inventation of this whole concept that Paul has here, this living sacrifice, is this concept that you are to die to what you want and then live your life as if every moment is to live for the glory of God. And you read these verses and you hear these things in sermons and you're like, how in the world am I, am I supposed to stay motivated? Motivated enough to get up and do what God wants me to do. Motivated to move around our schedules to reflect prioritizing God rather than prioritizing what we think gives us the most joy. What motivates you to move? What is it that motivates you to live? Well, I can tell you what it should be. Very simply, it should be God's glorious salvation, his amazing work that he does in spite of our hard hearts and our inclination to pursue sin. And Romans 9 tells a story about how God's salvation works and about why our salvation must be a work of God without regard to the will of men. And how glorious he looks when we begin to grasp who God is and how God saves. 
For example, if a famous athlete or a movie star or an angel from heaven told you to do your chores as a kid, what would you do? You'd do your chores immediately. So when God speaks to us in his word, shouldn't we be a little bit more motivated to do what he wants, to change? Because it's God himself speaking, telling us what to do. We ought to be highly motivated to worship and serve him above all. I mean, every time you pick up your Bible, it's as if God himself speaks directly to us. And so why are we so often unmotivated? Well, this text is about motivations. And so this morning, we're going to get some reminders because we need reminders to stay motivated. We're going to see four motivations to serve the only glorious God. Four motivations to serve the only glorious God. These are four reasons we should live our lives as a living sacrifice, serving God above all. There's an interesting connection in the Bible, a connection between the words that the Bible uses for worship. You see, when the Bible tells us that we should worship, those words to worship could also be translated to serve. You know, a lot of times we think of worship as all about singing, praying, or generally feeling close to God. But God is clear, worship and service are actually intimately connected. It means that when you worship, it affects your life and how you move in your life and what you do. It includes a wholehearted singing with your church family, of course. It includes prayers of praise, but it also includes things like evangelism. It includes different priorities and how you spend your money. It includes how often you open up your home for hospitality. It includes living with every breath as if you're a living sacrifice. You see, to worship is to serve with your whole heart. And the more we know God, the more we see how he works especially how he works to save and to sustain us. And the more we are then motivated to serve him. That's why the Lord gave us communion to regularly remind us how the Lord works to, so that we can be motivated to serve him. And the more you forget God, the more you don't know how he continues to work in your life, the less likely you're able to care about serving him with your life. Now, we pick up Paul's flow of thought as he highlights how God works to save us. Specifically, what God does before the foundation of the world. How he has absolute sovereign free will to do whatever God wants to save some and to leave others in their unbelief. So he says things like this, Romans 9, verse 13, right? As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. And it was before they were born that he says this. Verse 11 says, before they had done nothing either good or bad. God says these things so that God's purpose of election might continue. And then he says that our salvation then, verse 16, depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. 
And then things like verse 18. So then God has mercy on whomever God wills and God hardens whomever God wills. See, this section has been all about God's sovereign free will to do whatever God wants. And after answering some typical objections about God's fairness, about his goodness in calling some and not calling others, Paul reminds us as creator, God is free to do as he pleases. Look at verse 21. It says, has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? And part of what God does in, in allowing evil and allowing some vessels to remain in unbelief and sin is to show us his character, to show us who he is. That's what he says in verse 22, right? What if God desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? I mean, listen, would you be able to understand patience if you never sinned? No. Would you be able to understand God's holy justice, his wrath against sin, if no one ever remained in sin? Well, of course not. And so God, in his completely sovereign free will, chooses to save some and let others remain in unbelief. And so Paul continues. He says, verse 22, God has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. You see that word that's repeated twice there in verse 23, glory, right? God allows some to remain in sin. He even hardens some to remain in sin. He chooses some to be vessels of mercy, and he does it all beforehand because he wants his glory, the fullness of his character to be known. Two times, he says, he wants his glory to be appreciated, to be understood. Now, this glory language is often associated with brilliance, with purity, with holiness, being a set apart for unhindered good. And glory goes to God when we marvel at the depth of space and the billions of stars that shine brightly on a dark night. Glory goes to God when you stand on the edge of the Grand Canyon. Glory goes to God when we recognize who he is, when we see his power, when we see his authority, and when we see his goodness. So when you stop to consider that you are a vessel of mercy, someone who, who deserved God's wrath but has become his child, glory then goes to God. Our salvation is so incredible. 1 Peter 1.12 tells us the angels long to look into the glory of God as it's shown in our salvation. The only time that it says the angels long to look into something is in speaking of our own salvation. 
The riches of God's glory are seen when he chooses to save us in spite of our rebellion against him. And that also shows us that God's work in the Christian life must be irresistible. You see, God will always save and God will always sustain all of those that he purposes to become his children. Listen, it's not like God tries really, really hard to save us and we somehow thwart God's best plan to save us by making a few bad choices and end up not being saved. God is the creator and when he wants to do something, including save people, it happens. He does it. And so we say his gracious saving work is irresistible and glorious. Another way to put it, when he calls us to be his children, that salvation call is effectual. It's certainly going to happen. And so our first motivation to serve the only glorious God is God's calling is effectual. Number one, God's calling is effectual. Meaning it is certain to happen exactly as God intends at the exact moment that God intends. Now at this point, we need to distinguish the general gospel call and God's effectual call to save the elect. Okay, there's two types of calling, all right? First of all, you got the gospel call. The gospel call is the proclamation of the gospel that goes out to anyone who would hear the message preached. You might remember this many times in the scriptures. Uh, John the Baptist would go before the Messiah as the forerunner, and he would preach the good news of a Messiah coming, and he would encourage people to repent and believe in this Messiah. And so he generally said, this is what you need to do to everybody. And anytime you preach the gospel, anytime you explain the gospel, that's a general gospel call that goes out into whoever would hear it. In churches across the globe today, pastors are preaching the good news about Jesus, that he died for sins, and that he alone is the only way to be right with God. And so that good news that goes forth is a general gospel call. And yet some will hear that gospel call, and they will say, that is absolutely absurd. I do not want anything to do with this supposed gospel call, to die to self and follow Jesus. Why? Why would I do that? And they see it as crazy. They see it as absurd. And yet, that same gospel call at the exact same message, at the exact same time, on the exact same day, someone will be drawn to Christ like, like bugs to a light. Right? Like they, they can't help but turn and be like, that's amazing. I, I want this. I want Jesus. And what is the difference? Are some just smarter than others? I don't think so. The only difference is that in the person that is drawn to the light, God has done an effectual call in their hearts. God, choosing to have mercy on whom he has mercy, having compassion on whom he has compassion. It is God who gives life to a dead heart, who gives faith to see and to believe in Jesus. This work of God is known as his effectual calling to salvation. 
And so we can say very clearly, as verse 23, look down in the text, it says, We are vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. The implication is that God plans beforehand that we will be saved. We are crafted with this concept that we will be his children forever. And he continues to reiterate that this is a work of God because he says this in verse 24, Even us, vessels of mercy, whom he has called. You see, all vessels of mercy have heard both the general gospel call and God's effectual call in our lives, simply because we're saved. This isn't the first time Paul's brought up God's certain effectual calling. I mean, go back to Romans 8, verse 30. Romans 8, verse 30. Read those verse, that verse with me. And those whom God predestined, he also called. That's our word again. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. And this is described as an unbreakable chain of events. The way that he repeats these words and kind of connects them, he's saying predestination leads to calling, which leads then to justification, which then leads to glorification. Meaning that your salvation is all of God from before the time to the end of time. And so when it says that God calls us, it's not saying that there's just a general gospel call that goes out. This is God effectually calling those whom would become his children. And how do we know that? Because what's the very next thing after God calls us? He justifies us. He declares us right before his eyes. Now you might be thinking, man, what is all this talk about effectual calling and the difference between gospel calling? Is this, does this matter in any way? It's a question that you should ask. And as Paul asks that question, he looks out at a church that's struggling through trials. Things like government-sanctioned persecution, loss of property, Soon, in a couple years after he writes this, loss of life. And he says, the fact that your salvation is based on God's work at the beginning means that he'll be certain to bring you through to the end, come what may. And so Paul asks the question, verse 35, Romans eight thirty-five: who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? And he answers it so clearly in, in verse 38 and 39. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So know that you are saved Because God turned the gospel message of Christ crucified for your sins from something foolish, from something that you didn't want, something you dismissed or simply ignored, into something that you quite literally can't live without. And if God has given you eyes to see and a heart softened to the glories of serving the God of peace, then that same God will always bring you through to the end. Oh, beloved, that's the point of the doctrine of election. 
It's there not to be quibbled over. It's there to be an encouragement to us that God will bring us through to the end because he's the one who started it. And nothing can change God's hand. And so we are comforted. And we say, when I am weak, then God is strong. We're emboldened to share the gospel. For it's through God's servants proclaiming his gospel that God effectually calls unbelievers to faith. I mean, who doesn't want to be a part of that process? We just need to be simple and faithful to evangelize. And some of you guys are going to spend some time with family in the coming weeks, right? You guys got maybe a 4th of July picnic or barbecue or something. I'm going to challenge you, okay? Try to get out of that kind of cycle or circle of complaining that goes on when you get together with the friends and family that you know. You know, complaining about maybe politics or, or weather or how, how the inflation is going or whatever it is that you guys like to complain about as a family, right? And move to share the gospel again, or at least talk about how you are so grateful for what God has done in your life. I mean, we can use these times to glorify God, not necessarily just complain about the things we like to complain about. And perhaps this time, God will use your gospel encouragement to effectively call that unsaved family member. See, once we realize that God's effectual call will always save no matter what, you're going to be motivated to move, aren't you? To live for Christ, to, to serve him, and to trust that God will be faithful to finish what he starts. So be motivated. Share his gospel of grace. Second motivation, number two, God's salvation extends to all peoples. Second motivation, God's salvation extends to all people. Now, one of the, fascin uh, one of the fascinating stories behind the writing of Romans is what happened to the church in Rome before he writes this letter. See, all the early Christians in Rome were Jews who either heard Jesus in the final weeks of his life or they heard the apostles who preached the good news about Jesus on the feast days and the 40 days after Jesus' resurrection. And so the church started in Rome shortly after visitors from Jerusalem returned back home to Rome and after the Jewish feast of Pentecost within, you know, Three months after Jesus rises from the dead, there's a church in the biggest city in the empire. Once the first Christians came back to Rome, quite a few Jews very quickly embraced Jesus as their Messiah, and some prominent Jewish synagogues essentially became Christian churches overnight. I mean, imagine how controversial that would become if all of a sudden the Jewish synagogue, I don't know, somewhere in West Bloomfield, all of a sudden becomes a Christian church. I mean, that would kind of shake up things a little bit, wouldn't it? And over the next 15 years, the, the fights between Jewish Christians and Orthodox Jews would get quite ugly and occasionally violent. 
Eventually, the problem in the Jewish sector got so acute that the emperor took note. You know the church problems are bad when the emperor takes note of what's going on. And we know all this because Roman historians tell us that Emperor Claudius decided to banish all Jews from Rome in A.D. 49, all because they were arguing about someone named Christos, the Christ, the Messiah. Acts 19 tells us similar things were going on in Ephesus and other parts of the empire. And so, in AD 49, most Jews leave Rome. And that meant that the church has changed literally overnight. They got much, much smaller and almost entirely Gentile. No problem for God, though. For several years, churches in Rome thrive under Gentile leadership and Gentile membership, and they continue to meet in the old Jewish synagogues that they had been meeting in for a long time. And still other churches migrated to Gentile parts of the city. And all is pretty good in the churches of Rome until Claudius, the emperor, dies, and Nero becomes emperor about five years later. And as soon as the emperor dies, all of the other emperor's laws are reversed, and Jews are allowed back into the city. And you might think, oh, that's a good thing, right? Well, the Jewish Christians return, and they expect to rescue fledgling churches only to find thriving churches. Former pastors find themselves replaced, and it's not as simple as just reinstating old leadership. There's a completely new church. And as Gentiles begin to study the scriptures, they realize that a lot of the Old Testament language used to describe Israelites is now applied to the church and that Jews and Gentiles alike are adopted into God's family. That Jesus is not just the Messiah of the Jews and a few Gentiles. He's the Savior of the whole world, from some from every tongue and tribe. Well, that didn't sit so well with Jewish Christians, and it especially didn't sit well with Jews who had rejected Jesus. So knowing this conflict... A couple years after these Jews go back into the city of Rome, Paul writes this letter to Rome that we have in our Bibles. And he gives a defense for the gospel and how it is that Gentiles have come to participate in the same blessings of salvation originally that had just been offered to the Jews. He rehearses some of the blessings given to the Jews that are now true for the church at the beginning of chapter 9. It's a theme throughout the book, but 9 through 11 is particularly emphasizing this theme. Look at the beginning of 9, chapter 9, verse 4. He speaks of Israelites. He says, they are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption. But wait, Paul, you just said that all Christians, Gentiles included, were adopted. Yeah, he had, and he just said that. And then he says, the glory belonged to the Israelites. Well, now it says that we will receive glory through Jesus. doesn't matter whether you're Jew or Gentile. Then it says the covenants, and he implies that the new covenant is now participated in by Gentiles. And then he says the giving of the law, and, and he says it as if, and then he kind of speaks through the rest of the first part of first eight chapters, and he quotes the Old Testament law for Gentiles as if it's our Bible too. And guess what we have in the Bible? Jewish scriptures. And he continues, he says, the worship, it used to be that the only worship of the one true God happened in Jerusalem through the temple and through the Jews. But, but now, Jesus himself says, those who worship will worship me in spirit and in truth and, and can happen anywhere, and it's for Gentiles too. 
And then he continues, and the promises. There are certainly many promises that he had just talked about, how nothing will separate us from the love of Christ. And so he, he rehearses some of these promises that had originally been given to Israel, and now Gentiles have these as, as well. And so he wants to point out that there's no way that God's effectual call is limited only to Jews. So he speaks of Christians as vessels of mercy called by God, whether they're Jew or Gentile. So he says this in verse 24, even us, vessels of mercy, whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but what does he say? But also from the Gentiles. Jew and Gentile alike are equally adopted into God's eternal family. We both have the same Old Testament scriptures inspired by the Holy Spirit, and we have the same effectual call. This again is part of who God is. He is a gracious God. He blesses every Christian far more than we deserve. And in some sense, better than even unbelieving Jews. You know, this Jewish-Gentile tension isn't the first time that God would work to save some seemingly unsavable people. About 600 years after Paul writes this book of Romans, there's a bunch of barbarians that come into Rome and sack Rome and destroy Rome and come and, and take over the, what had been the greatest city on earth. You know where those barbarians were from? Those pagans? They're from Germany. A bunch of Germans, a bunch of pagan idolatrous people. And yet what happens Hundreds of years later, generations later, one of the most influential men in church history came from the Germans, Martin Luther. So brothers and sisters, there are no groups of people outside of God's saving. No groups of people that God cannot reach because their culture is too hostile to Christianity. No unreached cannibalistic tribe, no fundamentalist Islamic kingdom that is too hard to penetrate for God. You see, every single human in this earth has been created in God's image, and every single human, God says, from every tongue and every tribe will have a representative and be saved in the final day. And so let your heart break as much for the little girl that looks like you as it does for those you think are somehow your enemy. But the fact of the matter is, no one's your enemy. God wants us to break with compassion for every man, woman, and child. Let a big compassion motivate your zeal for missions. The fact of the matter is, God is in the business of turning foes into friends turning enemies into family. And so Paul quotes Hosea to this end. Look at verse 25. So he says, Even us vessels of mercy whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles, as indeed he says in Hosea, those who are not my people, I will call my people. And her who is not beloved, I will call beloved. That's exactly how Peter uses the same verse in 1 Peter 
Peter marvels at how fully Gentiles have become God's people, how they have fully received the blessings of the gospel. That was worth-shattering to the Jewish mind. And that actually brings us to our next point. Not only are we motivated to share the gospel because God's salvation extends to all people, but we also see a third motivation. God's grace covers the worst rebellion. God's grace covers the worst rebellion. And see, as Paul quotes a couple of verses from Hosea, this point will become very clear. God is in the business of showing grace, unmerited favor, even to those who seem to be hopelessly rebellious. I spoke to a friend earlier this week, a former member of the church, actually, who moved away a number of years ago, and he was telling me about his grandfather. He lived his life as an atheist, not just an agnostic, not just someone who says, well, you know, we can't really know for sure. No, this was someone who was, wasn't mildly against Christianity or mildly interested in Christianity. This is a man who lived as one who was steadfastly against Jesus with his whole heart and his whole strength until he became an octogenarian. In his mid-80s, this man finally became a Christian. Dozens of years, countless prayers, and multiple attempts at sharing the gospel, and this old man became a Christian. And it's not like he became a Christian, prayed a prayer, you know, and like you know, the next day died. No, he's still alive. He's kicking six years later, and he's now in his 90s, and he repeatedly says that his zeal to follow God has never been brighter than it was today. He is near constant reading of the Bible and other excellent Christian literature, he, he says, is simply making up for lost time. Why? Because he's motivated. He knows Jesus now, his glorious maker. Let that be an encouragement. It's never too late. No one is ever too hard to be saved by God's grace. And so Hosea highlights God's amazing grace in verses 25 and 26. So he says, as he says in Hosea, those who are not my people, God will call my people. And her who was, was not beloved, I will call beloved. Verse 26, he continues, and in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. These are two different passages with the same basic thrust. God is in the business of radically transforming even the worst of sinners. And to help you understand the weight of Hosea's words, we need to look at Hosea. So turn to Hosea chapter 4. Turn to Hosea chapter 4. Don't want you to see this just by me reading it. I want you to look at the scriptures. Turn to Hosea in the Old Testament chapter 4. Now, when Paul quotes Hosea, and he talks about not my people becoming God's people, you know what? Not my people is actually the name of Hosea's child. You see, God told Hosea, his prophet, to marry a harlot, a woman named Gomer, 
you don't find too many gomers out there anymore, um, who was famous for her infidelities, even before she was married. Hosea didn't even know if the boys or his children were his own. And so God tells Hosea to call one of his sons, not my people. He calls the other daughter, no mercy. Why? Because the names of those kids reflected the spiritual state of the nation of Israel. They had flat out rejected God and God wanted to make a big old object lesson for the people of Israel and had his prophet marry a prostitute so that he wouldn't even know if the kids were his. Look at Hosea 4, verse 7 and 8. And we just see, get some snapshots of what the people of Israel were like at the time. Verse 7 says, the more they increased, this is a time of opulent wealth. This is a time in which the people of Israel had essentially never been wealthier. The more they increased, the more they sinned against me. God says, I will charge their glory into shame. I will change their glory into shame. They feed on the sin of my people. They are greedy for their iniquity. Listen, Hosea is writing during this time of vast increase, this prosperity. Everything seems to be going right for the Jews, but underneath the surface, all is not well. Look at verse 12. My people inquire of a piece of wood. What does it mean to inquire? Like they're asking for help. They're asking for this piece of wood to to tell them something. My people inquire of a piece of wood and their walking staff gives them oracles. What's an oracle? It's a prophecy. So this walking staff gives them some sort of oracle here. And he continues. He says, for a spirit of whoredom has led them astray and they have left their God to play the whore. They sacrifice on the tops of the mountains and burn offerings on the hills under oak, poplar, and terebinth because their shade is good. Therefore, your daughters play the whore and your brides commit adultery. This is both talking about spiritual whoredom and literal whoredom because you see what was going on in the high places was all sorts of pagan worship practices. And there's a couple of different ways that those took shape. One was the typical way of essentially having a brothel on the high place. Remember how the king and the Chronicles say, oh, but they didn't take away the high places. You know what was going on in the high places? Basically a brothel, okay? You know what else was going on in the high places? They would have like, these halls or these outdoor gathering feast places where they would feast and worship Baal or Asherah or some other pagging god. Sometimes they would worship the, uh, they'd say, oh, I'm worshiping the one true God in the way that, you know, these other people used to worship Baal. But, but they were all confused in their mind. And so Hosea is sent to help them understand that going to the high places again and again and again is doing them no good. Uh, go, go to Hosea 10. Hosea 10, verse 1. Here, uh, Israel is described again in her prosperity. Israel is a luxuriant vine that yields its fruit. The more his fruit increases, the more altars he built. As his country improved, he improved his pillars. Right? These pillars are, are, are the, the ways that they worship these fake gods, likely Asherah poles and other monuments to fake gods. Israel got more money 
And so they did the things that they thought would make them happy. Putting money into the brothels. Putting money into the feasts to the pagan gods. It's like they've been given more resources, so they spend it on things that they hope will make them happy. And get this. They're still going through the motions of Yahweh worship. They still claim to follow him. So Hosea indicts them. Go to Hosea 6, verse 4. Hosea 6, verse 4. What shall I do with you, O Ephraim? What shall I do with you, O Judah? Your love is like a morning cloud, like the dew that goes early away. Therefore, I have hewn them in, uh, uh, hewn them by the prophets. I've slain them by the words of my mouth, and my judgment goes forth as the light. It's quick, immediate. For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. I mean, this is so helpful for us today, too. I mean, how many of you simply go through the motions in church week in and week out, or, you know, one week and every couple of weeks? But you don't have a love for God. There's little to no desire to know him, to worship him, to serve him with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Do you remember that God desires steadfast love, not just the things that you can do, sacrifices? Do you remember that God wants you to know him not just do a few things and say, yeah, okay, I'm good. In spite of this ongoing rebellion, in spite of such high-handed and obvious hypocrisy, when God wants to work with people, he's going to get a hold of those people. His hand is not too short to call us out of our sin into the light, to rescue us out of bondage to sin into the freedom that comes in Christ. And that should be a great hope for us as we might be convicted at times as we read God's word because God will be faithful to continue to work in us. God's grace for the Christian is astounding given that we are so often like Israel and marked as, as the worst of rebels. To picture God's marvelous grace, his undeserved favor for us, God instructs Hosea to show grace to his adulterous wife, Gomer. Go to Hosea chapter 3, verse 1. And Yahweh said to me, Go again, love a woman who is loved by another man as an, and is an adulteress, even as Yahweh loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisins. And he's not saying that you can't have raisins. Cakes of raisins were something they used in like Baal worship. It's like a Baal cake, okay? Just... Put that aside and you get the picture, right? God tells Hosea, go take Gomer again. Then he says, verse 2, So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a lethech of barley. Hosea buys his wife Gomer again at the slave auction. She didn't come back. She had left for some time and gotten so deep into things that she was now essentially owned by someone else. And up 
as she's at the slave auction, comes a familiar voice bidding on her as Hosea purchases her again. He calls her out of sin. He calls her to a changed life, to forsake her ways and to cling to her husband. Verse 3, And I said to her, You must dwell as mine for many days. You should not play the whore or belong to another man. So will I also be to you. There's a plea to turn, a plea to repentance, that God works in the people that he chooses. And so he writes our quote from Romans 9, chapter 2, verse 23. I will have mercy on no mercy. I will say to not my people, you are my people. And he shall say, you are my God. And we know this ultimate grace comes through Christ because Hosea is very clear about that too. Hosea 3, verse 5. Afterwards, the children of Israel shall return and seek Yahweh, their God, and David, their king, and they shall come in fear to Yahweh and to his goodness in the latter days. That king of David that one day will come and rule and reign is none other than Jesus Christ. Oh, beloved, do you see your sin as serious before God? Or are you like Israel, trying to be in the world and still worship the one true God on the side when you have time? See, once you realize that every single one of your sins puts you square in the category of harlot, unfaithful bride, then you'll finally get God's grace that is ours in Christ. The greater the debt, the more gratitude we show to the Redeemer, to the one who paid it all. And what becomes clear in the New Testament now is that it is not just a salvation available to the Jews, as Hosea prophesied, but these very same promises of grace to the rebellious are given to those from every tongue and tribe. When we start to see the depth of God's grace, we are motivated to move, to start living differently. That was the point of Hosea and why Paul brings Hosea's story forward into Romans 9. And so we see very clearly, number three, God's grace covers the worst rebellion. When you get that and then you get that you are part of that worst rebellion and you see God's grace, then we also are motivated by point number four. God's deserved wrath makes salvation sweeter. God's deserved wrath makes salvation sweeter. Turn back to Romans 9 as we finish up. Our final point is very much related to God's amazing grace, but it looks at it from the opposite perspective. Instead of being motivated by God's grace, we also need to focus on what we actually deserve. And like Israel in Hosea's day, we deserve God's wrath. Instead of focusing on how Gentiles are able to receive the same blessings of salvation, Paul shifts back to the Jews. Remember, he's got a mixed crowd here and explains that a remnant of believing Jews was in God's plan all along. Look at Romans 9, 27. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, in other words, though many Jews are in this world, only a remnant of them will be saved. 
For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. Verse 28 explains what should have happened. It basically turns our typical questions on their heads. Instead of asking, how can God be fair to elect some and not others? Perhaps the better question is, how could God be gracious to any? To keep any remnant alive? Shouldn't judgment come without delay on the wicked? Verse 28 says, For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. How come such obvious rebellion is allowed? Very simply, God desires a remnant to remain. He says, Although the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. He's holding back his just wrath. And it's highlighted again in verse 29. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, a remnant, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. Totally and completely wiped out. Fully and justly objects of his wrath. That's what Israel deserves. But there's still a remnant, even today, of believing Jews for God is not done with his people. Implying that principle to all of us, we need to remember what we deserve. And it always makes salvation so much sweeter. You might ask, am I really all that bad to be wiped out like Sodom and Gomorrah? I like to remember a helpful principle. The one sinned against always elevates the sin. In the movie American Gospel, there was an illustration of uh, what would happen if you scratch different cars. Okay? And this helps us understand that when you sin against something greater, the greater the sin. So if I go to the junkyard and I carve my name into a 1983 Buick, is anyone going to say anything? Probably not. If I go and carve my name into my brand, no, not brand new, my slightly used minivan, will somebody say something? I'm sure my wife will say something. And if I go to the Ferrari dealer and carve my name in the hood of a brand new $450,000 Ferrari, will someone say something? Oh, absolutely someone will say something. And I'll probably end up having some massive fine or even go to jail for a bit. The one sinned against always elevates the sin. And so we should realize even little eyes, short, lustful glances, those are an affront to the holy God. That's why it is so vital to realize what we deserve. God's deserved wrath makes salvation that much sweeter. The same point permeates a song that we sung earlier, Rock of Ages. The second verse says, Not the labors of my hands can fulfill thy law's demands. Could my zeal no respite? No. In other words, could I just keep on going and going and going and, and doing everything I can to um, do everything for the Lord? Could my tears maybe forever flow, maybe prove to God that I'm really sorry over my sin? All could never sin atone. None of that could cover my sins. Thou must save me, 
and thou alone. And the end of verse three, foul I to the fountain fly, wash me, Savior, lest I die. Rock of ages, our eternal glorious Savior gave us his double cure, saved from wrath to make me pure. You want to stay motivated to move, to serve God with all that you are? Remember what you deserve. Remember God's grace. His gift of Christ then will be so much sweeter. Staying motivated to serve God isn't about whipping up our emotions, but better knowing God and how he works. Communion is how God instructs us to remember these things. And every time we take the Lord's Supper, we prepare with these five looks. We always look back at the cross work of Christ because we remember that as Jesus' body was broken and blood shed, so we look to then the only sacrifice that could ever be in our place, that could ever be sufficient to cover our sins. So we look back at what Christ has done, but we also look up because we remember that we now have access to God, the eternal, holy, glorious one, because of what Christ has done. And as we take these elements, we're remembering that we now have intimate access to our heavenly Father. But this feast is also a time of introspection too. And we look within and we remember that we deserve God's wrath and yet God is gracious and covers us. And to the fountain we fly to be washed by the Savior. And we also look around as the we who are many partake of this one body. We celebrate how God has brought us together from all different walks of life and nations and nationalities, we celebrate that God's work of salvation extends to all of us from all over. Some of us even have multiple generations to thank God for in his grace. And finally, we look forward, anticipating that great day when the Lord returns. And so we rejoice as we celebrate the goodness of God and we stay motivated to serve him as a living sacrifice. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this glorious opportunity to spend a few moments remembering what you have accomplished on the cross. And we pray, Lord, that you would help this time of introspection, this time of remembering your work, this time of remembering your constant mediatorial access that you provide us, and this uh, time to remember that you have blessed us with a church family, and this time to remember where we have a glorious and certain hope. I pray that you would use this time to instruct us, to motivate us to live for you. In Jesus' name, amen.